I just, I feel really strongly about this idea that the plants just aren't for us. Like the other animals that are in our backyards, like they need them too. And they need them actually more than us. Like that's their food and their shelter. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. And in today's episode, we will be exploring the path of being a landscape designer with Linda Kelso. But first, I just wanted to mention that last week, I launched a Patreon page, which is a website that you can go to support the show financially if you wanted to. So I... um wanted to make a raffle to help support you guys in supporting me. So for the first 15 people that support the show through Patreon, um, I wanted to raffle away two t-shirts. So there will be about a 15% chance of you winning a shirt if you're one of the first 15 people. And actually, already eight of you have supported the show in just the first week that it's been um, there. So thank you so much for that. So there's seven spots open if you want to get in on that raffle. And if you end up contributing at $5 or above, you're actually entered in a monthly raffle to win a shirt as well, um, because that's just one of the rewards for being contributing at $5 or above. And if you contribute at all on Patreon, you will gain access to a monthly Patreon Patreon-only episode. And I just decided today that I'm going to make the first monthly episode, which is going to be coming out on August 1st, um, an interview with my sound guy, Frank Leon. So if you've ever wondered how the sound of this show comes together, um, how my sultry tones come into your ears, that will be your chance to hear all about that. And actually, hopefully Frank is okay with that because I tried calling him today to ask him if he was cool with that. And he didn't pick up. He's probably ironically hearing about this right now for the first time as he's editing this episode. So he's probably laughing at me saying this and Frank, hopefully you are cool with that, my man. Um, so anyways, on to today's episode. So today we talked to Linda Kelso, who again is a landscape designer. We'll talk about all things landscape design with her. So um, like what elements make for a good yard, for a good garden? What sort of things do not work well? Like what do plants like fight if you put them next to each other? Um, can you have a tree right next to a bush? What sort of things matter in terms of um, like watering and to all these like technical details, but then also aesthetic details, like just what can we do to make our yards look better and more pleasing to the eye. So if you are someone who likes the outdoors, I think you will like this episode a lot. Without further ado, here is Landscape Design. Linda, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we start out with what are the elements that are considered when someone's doing landscape design like spacing this that like what are all the things that someone needs to consider well those are important elements but whenever i'm starting a landscape design i actually take a step back from that and i look at it as uh problem solving so before i even get to those elements i'm talking to the homeowner and i'm looking at the property and i'm trying to figure out what problems are they having um, are they dealing with certain pests are there plants that have overgrown a space are there drainage issues so those uh those problems they become the elements that i focus on so 
For instance, if um, a homeowner is dealing with like a pest problem, say they have a lot of deer that are constantly eating everything they plant, then I know in that design, I'm going to be looking for deer-resistant plants. If they have drainage issues, I'm going to be looking at ways to deal with that. Or if there's drought, I'm going to look at ways that they can conserve water on their property. So, um, you know, dealing with the amount of space they have or water issues, all of that is important. But I think that what underlies that is looking at problems and trying to solve them in in a way that um, is aesthetically pleasing because you want it to end up beautiful as well as functional. Okay, right, for sure. Because obviously you don't want to have them spend all this money and make this beautiful yard and then mm-hmm. be like, oh shit, the deer ate everything. I can't believe it. <laughs> exactly. Outside of those um, issues, I guess, that you're trying to prevent or that you're trying to to help the homeowner with, what are some of the, the elements that make for good landscape design? Like visually speaking, like we've all heard of like feng shui and stuff like that. Like what, <laughs> what makes what makes a backyard just pop and look awesome and feel awesome? So there's uh, there's a couple different things, but one which is kind of um, I I didn't really uh, know this until I took classes and actually started designing, and then I was like, oh yeah, that really that really does work. But it's odd number groupings. So putting plants like the same kind of plant in groups of three or five, and then repeating those groupings throughout the design actually ends up looking uh, very pleasing and it gives the design a continuity. And the other thing is that, um, you know, I think a lot of people, me included, like we'll go to a nursery or garden center and you see all the plants and you get really excited and you want to buy like 20 different plants and put them in your yard. But what happens is that when you actually have them all in your yard, it can look kind of messy or it doesn't have like a continuity to it. So the key isn't to buy like 20 different plants. It's to buy maybe like um, groups of five different kinds of plants. So don't have a bunch of different ones in your yard. Pick like five or six or seven kinds and then create groupings of them throughout the yard. And so that's going to create a, a, you know, a continuity from, you know, backyard to front yard, your side yards. And, you know, you have some limitations based on how much shade or sun different areas of your, your home get. But if you can have uh, kind of similar plants or those groupings of plants throughout, then you, I think that creates a more visually appealing design. Now, when you were saying that thing about odd number groups and then Mm -hmm. repeating that throughout the yard, if you have, let's say a group of five of a plant somewhere in your yard, do you then have to repeat that as every single group throughout the yard that Mm -hmm. needs to have five or it can be five in one group, three in another, seven in another? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't have to be like exactly like carbon copies of the groups. Uh, but you know, and you could even, I mean, some spaces you're not going to be able to fit more than one of a plant in that space, but, uh, yeah, you don't have to like carbon copy every group, but I think just having a little bit of the same plant appearing throughout the yard creates a, a more cohesive design. And then where do flowers fit into this? Are they even considered a yeah. plant or they, cause obviously like one flower is only one flower. Like what, 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 how do you like mm-hmm. add, count the flowers per se? So flowers, you know, it, it, the groupings of like three to five, that's obviously when you have like a shrub or something that's that's easier to do. And that's more what that refers to. With uh, flowers, I just I just put 
I, I like can bunch groups of flowers together or I maybe put them in like a wave pattern throughout the yard. Like it's, it's better to have though a group of flowers together than just like one flower individually. Um, I, you know, if you think about, um, like where I live, it's really popular to have daffodils in the spring. But what happens is people will plant like one daffodil and then they'll have a large space and there's another daffodil like a couple feet away. And that looks a little bit funny. What's better to do is plant like a bunch of them in in kind of a clump and then you can have clumps of it throughout the yard. I just think it's uh, it, it's prettier that way. And, you know, it, it's nice to, too, to have like... Um, you can have the flowers in front. You could have maybe like shrubs, a layer behind that, maybe something taller. Like you can go by height as well, starting out at the front of the garden bed with something that's shorter and then working your way up height wise as you get more to the back of the bed. And mm. that looks really nice. too. That sounds nice. Just thinking about it. I like mm-hmm. that. Um, so what are some of the technical details that you need to consider when you're putting plants next to each other? Like, um, yeah, are there issues with like putting a really tall plant next to a really short plant? Are there just plants in general that like don't go well together at all? Are there colors in general that don't go well together? Are there plants that would like fight each other if you put them next to each other? <laughs> um, well, okay. So I think the 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 main thing to keep in mind is that when you purchase a plant from a nursery or a garden center you are usually getting an immature plant. You're getting it like when it's young. It's a baby plant. Um, but that plant is going to get a lot bigger. And that's particularly true if you're getting some kind of a, a shrub or a tree. So whatever plant you pick, you need to make sure you understand not just how tall it's going to get, but how wide it's going to get. And then when you go to put it in your garden bed, make sure that it's going to have enough space. And enough space is usually like how wide it's going to be when it's fully grown with a little bit of extra space in between it and what whatever you put next to it. Um, that is the the number one mistake I see when I, you know, when I'm doing landscape maintenance, when I visit other people's property, they've put plants in that are too big for their spaces. And they didn't realize it at the time because they were so tiny when they put it in, but the plants just end up growing out over top of the sidewalk or they're, you know, hitting into the house and you're just, you're just in a fight. You're never going to win. If, so is if that like you just got to do your research, big. either going online or mm-hmm. talking to someone at the gardening store um, yep. to find out what the finished size of this plant is going to be? Yep, exactly. And a lot of times when you go to the garden centers, like the, the, the tag on the plant will tell you. Um, but if you, if you're going to look for something, it's a really good idea ahead of time to measure your garden bed and, and understand like the width and the length of it so that you can go in knowing, okay, I can maybe only fit three of this shrub in here, not five, you know? taking into account how large it's going to be when it's fully grown. So that would be the the number one technical detail I can think of. Um, and in terms of uh, plants that you might not want to place together, uh, you do have to think about sunlight. Um, you know, most most sun-loving plants, they want about six or more hours of sunlight a day. And if you plant a a, a tree, like something that's going to become a very large tree, and then you want to have a garden bed underneath it, you you most likely want plants in that 
garden bed under the tree that are going to be shade loving plants because they're, they're going to be in the shade probably most of the day. So there's that to think about. Um, and then some plants can, um, I don't want to say exactly invasive, but they can be very, they can spread very vigorously <laughs> through your garden bed. So you, you just want to be aware of, um, any of those kind of plants for your area. And, and the thing is that, you know, a plant that might be fine in my area in zone six could become invasive somewhere else. Like there's a really popular plant called lantana. It's a flower. And if I, it's an annual where I live. And if I put it in the garden bed, it's not going to get very big or anything. But I have read that further south in the warmer zones, um, it can be actually an invasive plant. So if you put it in your garden bed, it might start to crowd out other plants. So I guess that's the third thing is uh, be aware that some plants will spread. They will do that vigorously. And sometimes it can be really hard to get rid of them. Yeah, if you decide, the, totally you know, different characteristics depending on where they're at. So you got to be mm-hmm. really careful with where you're at. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like a little yeah. gremlin or something. You're just like, <laughs> yeah, giving it too much water. Um, so... How in general do you keep plants from propagating and overtaking nearby plants? I mean, the that's what any living creature wants to do is to mm-hmm. to like spread itself. So mm-hmm. how even if it's not some like crazy runaway plant, how are you keeping the plants from oh like th- I've had this bush here, I have these flowers here, um, and this bush is just like totally invading on the, these flowers territory. These flowers are just going crazy now, and they're like all over the place. So it's it's not usually a big big issue. Um, there are there are certain plants like if you have um, daylilies or hostas, um, a lot of plants that have like bulbs or fleshy kind of root systems. What they'll do is you will plant one and then as as the years pass, like they will start to develop more and more from that root system. And that isn't usually like a quick thing. It's not like one year you're fine and the next year you're overrun with hostas. But what you can do is after a couple years, whenever there's too many of them, you can dig dig them up at the roots and then you just break them apart at the roots and you can plant them different places. So in that case, it's kind of nice because, you know, you start out with one plant or maybe like, you know, just a few um daffodil bulbs or something and they start to propagate you can just dig those up and then you can put them in different areas of your garden and it's happened slowly enough that it's not an issue uh most shrubs are i've I've very rarely seen a, a shrub kind of propagate itself in a problematic way through a garden um if that does start to happen um if you weed things out early in the season you take care of that Or if you, like, I know there are, um, there's a lot of maple trees where I live. And when those seeds spread, like, there are tiny little saplings everywhere. They're in the lawn, they're in garden beds. And the key is just to pull them out when they're young. Like, there's, there's no way to stop the tree from doing that. And, you know, sometimes the tree is not even in your yard. It's in the neighbor's yard. And it just spreads, um, seedlings everywhere but what you can do is like weed them out early on and you know then you you just take care of the problem uh 
if you if you have a plant though that is is truly invasive, um, there's one I I'm not sure if I'm remembering the name correctly. I think it's called like chameleon, but it was sold in a lot of garden centers. And where I am, it it is just a mad invasive plant, and it's not spreading by seed. It's spreading underground, like the roots are shooting out. Mm-hmm. And to get rid of those kind of plants is really difficult. Like you really have to like dig up the garden bed and get as much of the root out as possible. Um, That's why a little bit of research ahead of time is always a good thing because the best way to deal with those plants is not to plant them in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I I would imagine that it's difficult. So it sounds like a like a big kind of like running theme here is that you just really need to stay on top of your garden. It's not like, oh, mm. hey, we got this whole garden set up. Now we just get to chill and look at it for the next 10 years. Um, you need to go out. You need to like prune things. You need to uh, pull out, obviously, weeds or other little uh, like, you know, too much of a plant spreading around. Do you ever have clients that will like hire you and then they just like totally let go of everything and it becomes a problem? Uh, I have been hired for jobs like that. Uh, and I worked for a garden maintenance company before I started my own company. And we, we would definitely have clients that had let their gardens go for a long time, which is easy to do. I mean, especially we had a lot of um, elderly clients. And I think that, you know, the physical aspects of gardening get get difficult if you have back problems or knee problems or, you know, you're not as physically able And so, yeah, sometimes, you know, I would come in and it was just a completely overrun space and, you know, you just, you just had to do the hard work of of weeding it all out. That's why I, you know, I tell people that the best thing they can do is weed early and often, you know, if you can get the weeds before they go to flower and before they go to seed, then you uh, you can really head off a lot of issues. Um, so, like once once the the weeds go to seed, what's happening is you have one weed, it spreads its seed, and you're going to end up with like twenty or thirty or forty or more pretty soon. But if you can pull out the plant before that happens, then you've you've kind of cut off the problem right at the source. How do we know when that's happening? What like what do you mean when you say go to seed? What does that even mean? Like what does that look like? So I guess I should at- say. So after, um, when a plant flowers, what's happening is that uh, it's it flowers, something pollinates that flower, and then that flower turns into the seeds, like seeds are produced out of that. So basically, if you see something flowering in your garden bed, and it's not something you want to flower if it's a weed, if you pull it at that point, you're getting it before the seeds have formed. Okay. So... Let's talk about your work with your clients and and what that looks like. So how exactly do you work with a client? Like what's the interview process like? How do you guide them through what, what might work well for them versus like what they think they want? Um, and who kind of has, I guess, the final say in like what's going to end up in this person's yard? So it's definitely it's definitely a collaboration um, between the client and I, and it all starts with um, 
with an, kind of a, just a getting to know them and getting to know their yard, there's actually a lot of psychology in design. <laughs> and what I'm doing is, uh, like I said before, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like where their pain points are, what the problems are in their yard. And, you know, but I'm also trying to figure out more about them and how they want to use the yard. Like, do they want to entertain people? Do they just want to have a place where they can sit outside and, eat dinner and listen to the birds like do they um do they want a low maintenance landscape that looks nice but they don't have to do much with it so in the the first meeting that I have with them we'll walk around the property together and you know I'll be taking notes but then I sit down with them and I actually have a questionnaire that I have them fill out ahead of time it's sort of like a landscape design personality test and I'm asking things like, well, what's your favorite color? Um, what kind of outdoor activities do you enjoy? Um, even things like, what do you like in your next door neighbor's yard? Or what don't you like? Like, what what do you see around you that you might want to incorporate in your own yard? Then they just start criticizing their neighbors like crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that happens sometimes. Sometimes you get a better sense of like what they don't want from that. Um yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people, they kind of have a, a a sense of what they want, but to really clearly visualize how that is going to look or how it's going to end up, you kind of have to work with them to get them to that point. You know, because, I mean, there's a lot of plants, a lot of flowers and, you know, knowing how to arrange them and put them together in a way that is going to look nice, but that is also going to result in a landscape that is going to thrive and not have issues. I mean, that, that takes some knowledge and some skill and, you know, that's, well, that's why they hire somebody to, to help them out. So, yeah, I guess because the fact that they're hiring you are people usually pretty open to what you have to say in your opinion, or do you ever have people that are like, look, I want these two plants next (laughs) to each other. I don't care what you have to say. We're doing this. (laughs) I I have been pretty fortunate with my clients like they are um they've always been willing to hear me out um you know they're I just had a design uh finish up this last year and the client really she had like a long list of plants that she wanted I mean I think there were like 50 different plants on that list and uh in talking to her I found out what she really wanted was plants that smelled nice, uh, like flowers that smelled nice and that she could take and, you know, kind of have like a cut flower garden so she could go and make a bouquet out of them. So what it, what, what she had was this long list, but what she really wanted was actually just a few simple things. So I kind of like, you sound like a therapist, like the, like, well, what's behind (laughs) this? Like what's behind this emotion that you have? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I actually, um, I majored in psychology, so I don't know if that plays a role in how I approach it. Yeah, yeah. um, So, yeah. But, like, once you kind of figure out, like, why a client wants a certain thing, usually you can come up with alternative suggestions if what they want in the first place isn't going to work. And then, I mean, people have been pretty trusting with me. Like, if I say, well, I know you want this here, but it's going to outgrow the space and it's going to, you know, become a lot of work for you. I've, I've never had anybody like insist on it anyway. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's just, I've been really, really fortunate with clients so far, or if it's just that approach of kind of like digging down and trying to figure out 
the reasons behind why they want something. What about, have you ever had a client like unhappy with the way that things turned out? Like they, they kind of really want things to be a certain way and then they get to see them later on and it's like, ah, dang it, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be like. Well, I haven't had a, I haven't had a client unhappy with a design turn out a certain way. Although I am very like, uh, I feel like I, I look at my design sometimes and what I see are all the mistakes in them. Um, but I, I just did a design installation and the client, um, to, to save money, we planted a lot of things from seeds and we started them from bare root. Um, you know, because the, the more mature a plant is, like the larger it is usually, uh, the more you're paying for it. So to save money, we were starting things from bulbs and roots and seeds. And uh, I had told them ahead of time, whenever you do that, like the first year, especially the design looks really sparse. It's not going to look beautiful. There's probably not going to be flowers. And it's really in the second and third year that things really like take off and look really beautiful. And so I installed the design earlier this year and, you know, things are growing and it's fine, but it does look sparse. And so it's just kind of, um, you know, continually communicating with the client and making sure they, they, you know, I mean, nature is going to kind of do what nature is going to do. So it's making sure that they understand that, that they're on the same page with you. And the one thing I've found is the more I can be clear and communicate upfront about what they can expect, like the more satisfied they are with like the end result, because we're just on the same page about where it's going to be. Um, but I, I haven't, with the design work, I haven't had anybody um, really upset. Um, with maintenance work, sometimes there's a difference and you have to <laughs> work that out. But with design work, nothing so far. What's maintenance work? Just like the person's yard has gotten out of control and they, they want help bringing it yeah. back into something that looks nice? Yeah, that's um, that's a lot of like pruning and weeding and mulching and planting. And uh, where there have been differences there is particularly with pruning. Uh, there are ways that people want their plants pruned that can be harmful to the plant long term or even short term. And, uh, you know, like, for instance, a, a lot of people if they have a boxwood or something, they like it, like it turned into a shape, like a circle or a square or something like that. Um, a lot of people do that with evergreens too. But what happens is if you continually prune it like that, um, the, the green living layer of the plant on the outside gets like smaller and smaller and smaller. Like you have this like little layer of green that's maybe like one or two or three inches. And then if you look in the plant, it's all like brown inside. Um, that's a result of that kind of pruning. And if you continually prune that way, eventually you will kill the plant. So sometimes when someone hires you to do a pruning job, like they want that. And I, I will do that. Although there's, there's ways I try to prune the plant so that at least a little bit more light and air can get into the interior, which helps with the overall health of it. And it, it can even kind of stimulate it to start putting up more green growth from the interior. Hmm. But I mean, I think that people kind of have an idea of in their mind of how a plant should look when it's pruned and everybody has a different idea and that can be different from even how I think of it. And it's a really difficult thing to communicate ahead of 
time, at least for me so far. Um, so whenever there have been problems, a lot of it is is around like their expectation of what it should look like versus like what it ends up as. Yeah. And and if I can, I I try to like um, you know get it close to what they want or I'll make corrections. Like in my maintenance work, I usually like three quarters of the way through, I'll stop and then I'll have the client walk around with me. And, you know, we try to touch base over, you know, is this looking the way you thought it would? Is there anything you want me to change? But um, yeah, I mean, especially if it's somebody's yard, I mean, that's a very personal space and you, you have it, there's a way you want it to be. And, you know, I feel like it's it's like when somebody comes in, if they come in to clean your home, there's a way that you like your home to be and there's a way that you expect it to be clean. But um, getting yourself matched up with the people person who's doing that job takes some work and some communication. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's nice. It's uh, just such a representative of all of the rest of life. It sounds like that, mm-hmm. you know, there's no such thing as over communication. Like no. just just keep the communication lines open, and and we should be all right. Yeah. Um, yep. So let's talk about keeping plants healthy. So can you plant plants that are just native to an area, and they will require no extra watering and maintenance and stuff like that? <laughs> or like you mentioned, planting um, younger plants for for that one house. Um, because of the the lesser cost when a plant is very young or when a plant is a seed or whatever um, do they always require extra maintenance to make sure that they kind of make it in the world because it's like i you know i live in san francisco in a cool little area and there's just so many like beautiful plants near me um you know like when i go out to walk my dog or whatever and those plants every spring they come back you know like in the exact same spots and yet i manage to kill like every plant that i ever try to grow and it's like what the (laughs) hell like do i just need to plant this exact plant that i'm seeing on my walk and it's just going to absolutely kick ass or is it because that plant that i'm seeing on my walk is now like 40 years old so it just knows a thing or two about living (laughs) um maybe a combination um when you i mean the key thing when you when you when you plant something when you've just put it in is to make sure that it gets enough water um, and not too much water because that can be a problem too. So, I mean, when you put a young plant in, you you want to make sure that you are deeply watering it maybe like once or twice a week. Um, and by deeply watering it, I mean you, you will, I usually water it until I see a little bit of water kind of puddling around the plant and then I stop. And then I watch and the, I want that water to like sink into the soil within a couple minutes. And then I know I'm good. And then, you know, the next day or for a few days after, I'll just look at the soil, I'll touch it. And if it feels moist, I don't water. I wait till it dries out and then I'll do another deep watering. And uh, typically I'll do that in, in the morning when I water. Uh, now, if, if the water stays puddled around the plant for a while, like for 20 or 30 or minutes or longer, then you've overwatered. And that can kill the plant because what happens is the roots drown. So um, the, the roots actually need to be able to take in some oxygen, even underground. And when you water too much, like they can't get that oxygen. And so the plant dies, like what'll happen is it'll wilt and you'll think, oh, I 
didn't think I watered enough and you'll give it more and it'll just be more of the same problem. So the key is always to water until the ground is saturated, see if it's moist. And as long as the ground's moist, you don't need any more. Hmm. So uh, with young plants, you want to consistently water them, especially in the first couple weeks or months after you've plant planted them. And uh, you want to just give them enough time so that uh, I don't know that the weather get, I mean, you're where you are, the weather probably doesn't get that cold over winter, but where I am, it gets down to, you know, freezing or below. And so I try to plant things early enough in the spring or the summer so that they have time to establish a good root system. Because, um, you know, we all look at plants like above ground and we, we see the leaves and the branches and stuff, but really important stuff is happening underground that's so key to the health of the plant. And part of that is that root system like growing big and strong and like establishing itself. Because if that root system is good, then it's pretty likely that your plant is going to come back year after year. Um, and, and like I was saying, like with the designs where you start with very young plants and they don't look that great the first year, that's because the plant is putting its energy into developing that root system. Like that's the most important in that, in that initial time. So if you, if you water the plants well, and if they have enough nutrients in the soil, which is another important thing because, um, you know, just like us, they need nutrients to survive. Then they, you know, if you planted a perennial, they should come back year after year. Um, the only dangers are, you know, if there's any kind of a pest that gets to them or any kind of plant disease. But, but in general, a lot of um, a lot of non-native plants, especially, are cultivated to be resistant to pests and diseases. So. You know, just like I was mentioning before, to look at what the final size of the plant is, you can check and see if it's resistant to certain pests or diseases that might be common in your area. And if you get a plant that is resistant and you water it well enough and it has the proper nutrients, like it should, it should do well. Like plants want to live. They, they definitely, uh, <laughs> like all of life, they want to continue living. So. so a lot of people's yards that I've seen in California will have like irrigation systems rigged throughout their yard mm-hmm. to water mm-hmm. their plants. Is yep. that only necessary then if you are um, like planting non-native plants to the area that you're in once they get older? Um, I, I guess like to the, to the point, like if, if you're planting a plant that's from California, you live in California, why should you need an irrigation system? If that plant's from California, it should be used to the, to the normal rain cycle in California anyways. So, yeah. So just to, 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 uh, to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's that there is something to that, that a plant that is um, native, which means that it evolved in that area is going to be fairly used to the conditions of that area. Although do keep in mind that there have been some environmental changes happening. Like I know that where I live, we used to be zone five, we're zone six now, like it's becoming a little bit warmer where we are. And and that is affecting even the plants that are native to this area. So, you know, they've they've kind of adapted over time to certain temperature extremes. And as that changes, you know, even even um, rainfall amounts. So that can play a, a role in it if there's some kind of like large scale environmental change. But even um, 
even with native plants, I mean, they can go through stress or struggle if, if there is, you know, long-term drought. And so, uh, irrigation systems are a, a great way to deal with that. And they're a great way to preserve water. They're, you know, they're, especially like a drip irrigation system is just slowly putting water in right at the roots of the plant, which means that the water isn't being primarily lost through evaporation, like it's going right to where the plant needs it. So that is a great solution. Um, the There is like a whole um, field of landscape design is called xeriscaping, and it's focused on, you know, landscaping in, in areas that are experiencing drought. And so you can find plants that are really good for those areas like succulents are really good like they require very little water like even when they are small and you've just purchased them like you really don't need to water them very often so so you know if you live in an area that's experiencing drought again it goes back to like researching before you go out to buy the plants and looking for drought resistant plants because you know, they might need a little bit more water when you first plant them, but as they establish themselves, they long-term are not going to need too much. Okay, cool. Good to know. Linda, why don't you tell us what your top three like plants or flowers are? Do you, can you have a top three or do you feel bad like <laughs> all of my children are beautiful? I can't say. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard. Um, I think that they change from time to time. Um, but right now... Uh, my top three, let's see. Well, okay. So I came into landscape design by way of vegetable gardening and herb gardening. So I think that influences my top three. Um, my first is basil. And, uh, that is because that's really the first plant that I had success growing. Um, I just find it really easy to grow. You can, wow, that's so crazy. Uh, Herbs in general are so hard to grow. Oh no. (laughs) Like basil, man. Um, well, you know what I think happens? I, I think a lot of people overwater them. Yeah, I really feel like a definitely. lot of people, when they have trouble, like they're overwatering. Um, basil, you know, you can keep the soil a little bit moist, but like you put it in a flower pot, you can stick it outside, like, you know, give it give it water enough to keep the soil moist and like it'll take off. And if you prune it correctly, like, because, yeah, you can seriously prune basil. It'll it'll get, like, nice and big and bushy, and it'll even work. Like, I use it as a landscape plant in my own garden. Hmm. I just really like it. <laughs> yeah, and then you always you have it around to cook with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Make a nice, like, caprese on the fly. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your favorite type of basil? Thai basil. Um, yeah. I, I love Thai food, and I try to cook it and i like having some thai basil on hand when i do that so nice yeah when we uh my wife and i went to thailand a few years ago before we were married and we did this awesome cooking class there and this guy took us to the farmer's market and he showed us like all these different types of basil and i was like what the hell like i thought there was just basil you know and like and he just goes over all these different types of basil and one of them was lemon basil and it like blew my freaking mind i was like are you kidding me like this is like an entirely different like i mean it tastes like lemon you know like it's crazy it's awesome 
There's like a, there's an African basil too that has purple leaves. It's really pretty. Yeah, there's so many different kinds. And like, I feel like every year I see more and more varieties like showing up in like the local greenhouse that I go to. So like, I just buy all every variety that I can find. Yeah, love that. Yeah, all right, well, good it. first choice. What, what else do you like? <laughs> um, so I like sage, another herb. And where I am in zone six, sage is perennial. And it gets these beautiful purple flowers on it that pollinators love. So I planted some last year and it survived the winter. It came back this year and just like took off and has like tons of flowers. And like the thing about perennials is that they will like even though they live year after year, they'll only be in bloom for like a week or two or three weeks out of the year. But that flowering sage like kept its blooms for a really long time. And I would just sit there and like watch butterflies and bees visited. And, you know, and then again, like it's an herb so you can cook with the leaves, which are also really pretty. So even when it's done flowering, like you still have this plant with really attractive leaves. Yeah, I love that you uh, I love that your first two are both herbs. Like I would rather smell (laughs) an herb than a flower any day. Like herbs are just where it's at. Yeah. Yeah, me too. That's how I feel. Yeah, I I use a ton of them all through my own landscape. So, um, and then my my third one is called butterfly weed, which is a type of milkweed, and uh, I I don't know how it is where you are, but like I mean, where I am, like the monarch butterflies were on on their migration. And there's been like a really big decline in the number of monarch butterflies. And a big part of that is because um, the only place that they will lay their eggs and the only plant that their caterpillars can eat is milkweed. And uh, a lot of areas that had milkweed, which is like like, um, the sides of fields that are farmed or roadsides, a lot of that's been cut down or destroyed. And so the the monarchs don't have as much options as to where to like lay their eggs or where their young can thrive. And that's affected the population. So um, the there are a lot of different kinds of milkweed, but a lot of them, you know, we were talking about invasive plants that can take over. And a lot of those different varieties can do that in your garden bed. But butterfly weed is less likely to do that. It spreads a little bit slower and it has this really pretty bright orange flower. So um, it's a plant that a lot of different pollinators like, including monarchs, but the monarchs will lay their eggs on it and their caterpillars will eat it. And then, you know, you get those um, cool little chrysalis, you know, whenever they are pupating to see. So yeah, butterfly weed is my third one because I just, I feel really strongly about, about this idea that the plants just aren't for us. Like they are, you know, the other animals that are in our backyards, like they need them too. And they need them actually more than us. Like that's their food and their shelter. So you get to pay it forward to the monarch population. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. I, um, it's so amazing to me in nature just how smart and deep rooted um, mm-hmm. animals navigation systems are like the the idea that a monarch is like that's my plant like that one right there for like how good is your eyesight or your whatever <laughs> like I don't know what you know clearly it's not eyesight like I don't know if it's smell or this or that but like whatever sense it is that makes them know like that's a milkweed it like is 
unbelievable that someone's garden can have 100 different plants in that garden and they're going to fly straight to the milkweed is almost unthinkable (laughs) in poor monarchs that they don't know any better that it's like i by the way you could have landed on any one of these other like like 90 out of the other 100 plants your your child could have also eaten and it would have been fine um but for whatever reason they feel compelled to go to the milkweed you know the re- well. First of all, like I just learned this, but actually they can they taste with their feet. So as soon as they land on the plant, like that's how they're telling, like mm. if it's one to eat or lay eggs on. But the cool thing is, like the reason that it's milkweed is, uh, you know, we were talking about like 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 native plants. They've evolved alongside the animals in whatever area they're in. Yeah, yeah. So milkweed is poisonous, um, but. But the monarch butterflies have adapted. And so what happens is the caterpillars eat it, and then the caterpillars become poisonous themselves. Like, they don't die of it. They take in that poison, and it's their, it becomes their defense. That is the so, most badass thing I've ever heard in my entire that's life. That's awesome, right? <laughs> Dude, that is, that, that's so cool. That is so cool. I'm so happy you just told me that. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get back to you and landscape design a little bit. So, what is it that made you want to get into landscape design, and, and like, what what job were you doing before all this? Uh, well, so I never I never thought this would be my career. Uh, I like I said, I have a degree in psychology, and then after I got that, I spent about ten or eleven years working in kind of like administrative kind of jobs. And I, I am not somebody who likes to sit still and I like to be outside. And so being in an office for like eight hours a day was just like, it was not working for me. I was kind of going nuts. And so I was like, oh, I need something. So I took up gardening as a hobby and then I wanted to earn a little bit of extra money. So one summer I took a second job on the weekends at a greenhouse And while I was working there, I met some master gardeners. Like there's this whole program in the United States called the Master Gardener Program. And basically it's, it's volunteers and they go through a series of classes and then they help the community, um, learn more about gardening and pests and just anything else to deal with horticulture. And it's, it's free. It's a free service to the community. So I was like, Oh, that sounds awesome. So I, I, found out where the local master gardener program was in my community. I interviewed with them and got accepted into their program. I went through a couple months of training. And um, in the process of that, um, one of those lessons that I sat through was taught by a horticulture professor from a local community college. And I just like, I'm like a classroom junkie like I can't stop learning I my friends are always asking me like what degree are you working on right now (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like I can't stop taking classes so when the master gardener classes ended I was like oh I kind of like want to go deeper and I'm kind of thinking like maybe there could be a career in this I don't know so I signed up for a class at the community college with that professor and really liked it. And I was like, okay, well, I think I can turn this into a career. And I, I think that um, I could even turn this into my own business, which 
you know, um, those past 10 years, I had worked for several different small companies and entrepreneurs, and I had been wanting to start my own business for a while. I just couldn't figure out like what to do. So uh, going through that program, I was like, you know what, this is like, I don't have to like travel far to do these classes. Like I don't have to invest a ton of money. Like this will be done in like a year or two, a year and a half or two years. And uh, I think that I can take it and make my own company. So that's kind of how it got started and how I got into landscape design. That's awesome. What is, what is the pay like for a landscape designer? I, I'm not sure what it is if you're working for somebody else. Like where where I'm from, most of the landscape designers are just kind of one person or two people companies, mm-hmm. at least as far as I know. Um, and in terms of, I, I feel like what I make running my own business is probably a lot less than what somebody would make if they worked for somebody else because like I get paid for the design or maintenance work I do. I do not get paid for all like the other 20 million things I have to do to run a business. Yeah, so, of course. yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm not totally sure what the standard pay is. I, I want to say like, like, yeah, I, I couldn't even say uh, maybe like, 25 or 30 an hour if you're working for somebody else, but maybe more. Um, if you, if you're a landscape architect, which is a level higher than where I'm at, that's like typically like a four year degree. Um, you, you probably make a lot more than that, but yeah, running my own business. I, yeah, my goal is to get myself to the point where I'm totally self-sustaining with it. But you know, in the first couple years of business, like you're just figuring it all out. So I'm yeah. not totally there yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think is like the most valuable lesson that you've learned from landscape design in the in the past couple years of having this business? I think that it's that communication is key. Um, I think that's been my main thing because if even if you are a really skilled designer or you're really skilled at pruning or weeding or whatever, if you can't communicate effectively with your clients, I, I, I don't know that you're going to succeed. And what I run into a lot with people is sort of this hesitation about working with contractors because what's happened is that they've, they've had poor experiences that boil down to poor communication Um, Either somebody hasn't gotten back to them or they haven't clearly communicated the scope of a project, things like that. So what what I have found has actually been a really big advantage for me that I never expected was the ability to just clearly communicate, like beyond the design, beyond the horticulture aspect of it, like just being able to um, share a vision with a client or communicate why something needs to be a certain way has has been really huge yeah yeah absolutely yeah nothing nothing more important like you said for any for any sort of contractor like that's where all of the problems start to crop up is just that yeah that expectations were not really met and obviously if you if you're communicating clearly then expectations should always should always be met mm-hmm. yeah so Linda, let's uh, finish this thing up with some advice for everyone. So if after listening to all this, people are like, I love plants. I love being outdoors. I want to freaking do that. What advice would you give to someone? So, well, the first thing I want to say is um, 
you know, this is a really flexible, really rewarding kind of career direction to go, especially if you love being outside and working with plants. Uh, if you if you want to start your own company, or even if you're just interested in this, I would work for someone else first. Um, I worked for a garden maintenance company, and that taught me so much about dealing with clients and also how to time certain things. Like it gave me a really strong sense of how long it would take me to do certain jobs like pruning or weeding. And it also just helped me understand, like, you know, as a landscape designer or somebody doing landscape maintenance, you are outside and, you know, it can be really hot or the weather can be raining or you're dealing with a lot of bugs. And so kind of doing a test run working for somebody else gives you a sense of like, can you do this and will you like it? And, you know, if you have a long history of working with plants and you're a skilled gardener, you don't necessarily have to go back to school uh, or work for somebody else, but I would recommend it. Um, I think that going to school for this and getting an associates in it helped me understand kind of the science behind plants. And that makes me more effective at what I do because I understand the why behind things. Um, so, and I'm sure it keeps you more captivated and interested interested yes. throughout the day to day. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the thing is like I can I love to learn but I get bored very easily and I this hasn't gotten boring yet. So cuz there's always more to learn. And I think that's my final thing about this is just to never stop learning, but also don't be intimidated if you don't know it all. Um, for me, I, I think that I could have started my business even sooner than I did, but I felt like, oh, I just, I need to learn a little bit more. I need to learn a little bit more. But the truth is like you, I think at least I learn best by actually going out there and doing something. And I had a solid foundation. I just needed to like step out and take action. So never stop learning, but you know, realize that it's okay to act even if you feel like you don't know everything. Yeah, for sure. Great advice. Because yeah, there's certainly never going to come a day where you're like, I <laughs> got it. <laughs> That's just that day that you're waiting for is never going to come ever. So you just got to jump off the deep end and do it. Yeah, so true. Yeah. All right, Linda. Well, thank you so much for everything. I uh, I wish that my yard was in such a pile of crap right now, so I could walk out there and do some <laughs> stuff. I, I feel like inspired to to plant some plants and, and look at some flowers. That's awesome. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Linda. Wanted to give a quick thanks to the $10 supporter of the show on Patreon. On Patreon, if you support the show, there are different rewards for each level that you support the show at. $10 is the highest level to support the show at. And at $10, you get a audio thanks on every episode while you're supporting at that level. So right now we got one supporter at that level, which is my sister, who is like the nicest, most loving, wonderful sister in the world, Brittany Marcotte. Her and her husband are supporting the show at $10 per episode right now and uh if you guys haven't heard the episode with Brittany, i actually interviewed her um doing a stay at home mom episode so if you want to look back in the archives and check that out it's a great episode Brittany's awesome and uh thank you so much for your support Brittany. and uh thank you all for your support if you have time to check out the patreon that'd be awesome if you don't or don't have the money to do that if you could just tell a friend about the show leave a review on itunes anything really helps and i really appreciate it thanks so much take care guys